So, some of you may have to think back farther than others on this next question, but that's okay. When you were a kid, were you ever embarrassed by your parents? Is it ever awkward to have your parents show up when your, you know, cool friends were around? It'd be a rare child that doesn't have any memories like that. And if you suffered that, you suffered because you got, at least in the moment you were embarrassed, you got intensely worried about what other people were going to think of the company you keep. That people were going to judge you by your parents. Have you ever been embarrassed by your friends? Kind of worried that people see you hanging out with so-and-so and they're going to maybe not have as high opinion of you as you think you deserve. And again, it's that same thing. I'm more worried about the opinion of others. At least in that moment, I'm deeply concerned that I'll be judged by the company I keep. It's actually kind of a rule. It's not a rule that you'll see written on any tablets of stone anywhere. It's just a rule that we sort of pick up by osmosis from our culture. And unfortunately, I think it's a part of the expression of sin and collapse of relationship with God that this is such a fixed rule for so much of our lives and the lives of the people around us. If you don't know the right people, you aren't the right people. If you don't know the right people... You aren't the right people. We are frequently faced with being judged by the company we keep. We are frequently faced with sort of being status downgraded just because of who we're seen with, who we're hanging out with, who we're friends with. That's one of the unwritten rules of the fallen world. That was the unwritten rule of the fallen world 2,000 years ago when Jesus came in the flesh for us. And it continues to be a rule today. If you don't know the right people, then you aren't the right people. And it's a key issue. It's a key subtext of the little passage that I want us to focus on this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to that same passage that we had read. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 down through 17. You really need to read this story in light of that attitude which all of us sort of take in with our mother's milk. If you don't know the right people, you aren't the right people. And it starts with another call of disciples. We've already had Jeremy preach last week about the the call of Peter and Andrew and the other fishermen there by the sea. And here we have the call of Levi. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He has a more famous name, Matthew. Matthew's Gospel gives this same story with his name, so that's why I stuck that in there. But Mark tells it the story of the call of Levi. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to Him, and He began to teach them. And as He walked along... He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. 
It's a pretty simple set of sentences. You know, you read, the surface is just very simple. Jesus is just doing this kind of stuff. He's, he's calling people to follow him. He's going to gather his disciples. And then, you know, eventually they're going to write the Gospels and the book of Acts and all that stuff. I mean, for us, 2,000 years later, we can have that level of emotional distance. But imagine how people in the first century would have viewed this story. Especially when you get to that one phrase, however it's translated, tax collector. How many of you, I asked this class in, uh, this question in Bible class last week, how many of you are just so thrilled when you get a letter from the IRS? Is that a joyful day? Actually, one time a year it's joyful for me. I always pay too much, and so I get a little bit back from the federal government usually. Uh, so I'm happy one time a year to get something from the IRS. The rest of the time, if I get a letter that's from the Internal Revenue Service, I am not a happy camper. It never brings good news, seems like. We don't even like tax collectors that much uh, in the 21st century. But the situation for the Jewish nation in the first century was ten times worse. Matthew is a tax collector. We don't think he was a high-level tax collector. He was probably down at the very bottom, bottom, bottom rung of the tax collecting industry. But what you've got to understand is tax collecting was, in fact, an industry. The Romans knew that people don't like tax collectors and so they basically privatized tax collection. You could bid to collect the taxes for Syria. Or in this case, the land of Israel. You could bid with the government. And I suppose the lowest bidder would, uh, would get the contract to collect the taxes. And of course, you, you said, I'm going to... I'm going to deliver this much revenue. I'm going to keep this much for myself. That was your profit margin. Tax collectors were viewed as inherently dishonest, a part of a shady, dishonest system. Because there's all the business motivations are now on the side of cheating the people that you're taxing. Nobody likes paying taxes in the first place. And now you've got people whose whole profit margin depends on how much they can squeeze out of you. People viewed tax collectors as just an inherently corrupt group of people. Mostly not welcome in any synagogues. Don't bother coming to our synagogue, you tax collector. We don't want you on Sabbath. We don't want you here. It was worse than that for Israel for another reason. They were collecting taxes for Rome. Rome. The nation that for 90 years had held the Jews under their thumb. The nation that took those very same taxes and used it to support the soldiers who were keeping Israel under the Roman boot, under the Roman thumb. So every time I pay my taxes, I know part of my taxes are going to keep me enslaved to the Romans. And for Jewish people, the Romans, it was particularly awful to be under the Roman boot again. They had had a brief spurt of independence about a, uh, 190 years before this. 
And that had been ended by the Roman invasion, the Roman occupation. And so, what freedom they had, their grandparents' grandparents could remember has now been wiped away by this alien power that here is in our land. Not just an alien power, but a pagan alien power. The Roman legions actually marched with golden uh, emblems in front of their in front of their columns, and those golden emblems, when they weren't being part of a parade, would be taken and placed in a temple. And yes, people would worship and swear oaths by the symbols of the legion. So literally, when you see Romans marching, you are watching an idolatrous parade. And if you're a tax collector, you're a Jewish person who works for them. You understand why tax collectors... It's almost one word, tax collectors and sinners. You know, it, all, it almost doesn't need any spaces. Tax collectors and sinners. It naturally, of course, tax collectors are wicked people. They're traitors. They're robbers. They're thieves. All their associates are the same. That's probably the first thing we need to realize when we, under, when we look at this story. Everyone assumed Levi was a thief and a traitor when Jesus called him to be a disciple. Everybody assumed he was a thief, inherently corrupt, and a traitor, someone who betrayed his own people for profit, sold them out to the Romans. And that's who Jesus called to be a disciple. It's a great story up to now. Mark compresses all the narrative bits so that we can read it very quickly. If you don't know the right people, you aren't the right people. How does Jesus measure up on that standard so far? Well, let's see. His first four followers in Mark are Peter, Andrew, James, John. What's their resume? Oh, yeah, fishermen. They're going to inherit Daddy's boat one day, but not right now. They're just fishermen. The next guy he calls, Matthew, tax collector, outcast hated by his own people. But one thing's for certain. If you follow the career of Jesus, you would never say, well, you know, it was the people he surrounded himself with. That's why he was so successful. No. These are not the people you would choose if you're concerned about impressing others with the company you keep. These are the opposite of the people that you would choose if that's what you're worried about. If you're living by the standard, if you don't know the right people, then you aren't the right people. You, you would do the exact opposite of what Jesus has been doing uh, story by story in the Gospel of Mark. Why did He do that? Why did He do that? Well, for one thing, Jesus hates that rule. If you... If you don't know the right people, you aren't the right people. Jesus thinks that is a part of the corrupt system of this world. And He came to turn those kinds of rules and those kinds of principles by which people just sort of naturally live. He came to turn them upside down. And say, I want to show you what a godly life, a God-sold-out life looks like. And I don't go around collecting people based on the impression that they will make. I call people because of what God, my Father, 
can do with them. What do people think about you? What do people assume about you when God came into your life? What did you assume about yourself when God came into your life? Are you glad at all that God doesn't live by the rule? If you don't know the right people, then you aren't the right people. Aren't you glad God is willing to come to where you were? Not because of who you are, because of how impressed people will be if God's seen hanging out with you, but because of what He believes you can become. Aren't you glad? That's Jesus Christ. That's our Savior. He knows what Matthew can become. He knows what Levi can become. And He calls him in order to make something better out of his life. So what does Levi do? I, the next verse and... And Luke and Matthew, Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew both record this little next detail too, and I just love it. The next verse, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. How did Levi react to this unexpected honor of Jesus calling him to be a disciple? He had a big party, party at Levi's house. What do you think that was like? Out through Galilee. Hey, there's a big party at Levi's house. Which Levi? Levi the Pharisee? Levi the, the Levite? I'd go to that part. Levi the priest? Yeah, let's go to... The... No, no, it's Levi the tax collector. Ooh, I can't afford to be seen there. Party at Levi's house, not a great... You know, it's not a hot invitation. Who shows up? Jesus and his disciples. Levi is happy that Jesus wants him for anything. And he has a big party. But who will come to a party thrown by Levi the tax collector? Well, the verse goes on. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. In other words, who comes to Levi's house is other people who are in Levi's situation. Tax collectors, sinners. Other people that the synagogue had said, yeah, yeah we, we're, you're not so welcome here anymore. You know, work out your own problems with God. If you clean your life up, maybe you can come back to the synagogue. But right now, you're kind of in that well-known class. Tax collectors and sinners. And that's who shows up at the party. And Jesus is there eating and drinking with everybody else. These are people that many of them have already started to put their faith in Jesus Christ. At least they want to hear more of what He has to say. These are the worst kind of people to hang out with if Jesus is trying to win a popularity contest. But that's not what Jesus is trying to accomplish. 
Do you ever wonder? I mean, I wonder these things when I read the Bible. I just, do you think Levi felt ashamed of the friend group that he could pull into his party? I think he's like, well, I wish I had, I wish I had better friends. I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus. It's the best that I, I couldn't get anybody else to come. But you know, here, here are some people. Let me, let me introduce you around. You think he was ashamed of his friend group? Jesus didn't see the problems as reasons to stay away from the party. He saw those problems as an opportunity, a reason to go to the party. Who has God put in your life? You got all clean, prestigious people in your life? Who has God put in your life? If we follow what Jesus is doing, how he's acting, then you begin to think wait a minute, these people are not a problem. These people are an opportunity for God. I don't know how God's going to do that, I don't know what God might do. But I realize that if I'm a person that God has bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm here in association with this person who has a lot of problems, then that's an opportunity for God's will to be done in this person's life. So there Jesus was at the party. Levi gave a big party to celebrate being called, but only other tax collectors and sinners would come. When we get to the meat of the story, I think the reason this story uh, is important enough for Mark to include it, for the Holy Spirit to want Mark to include it, is because of this last little bit of the episode. Because this, this foreshadows what's going to happen throughout the Gospel. Mark 16 and 17. Mark 2, 16 and 17. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, Matthew tells a very similar story in this same context. The Pharisees are living by the rule, if you don't know the right people, then you aren't the right people. Jesus is operating according to a different standard, and they call attention to that fact. They don't talk to Jesus directly. They, this type of personality does better with gossip and going around the corner. So they just kind of whisper to the disciples, What? Well, this guy's supposed to be a rabbi. He's supposed to be a religious leader, so he claims. <laughs> this is his congregation? A bunch of... Lost souls. A bunch of people who've made a wreck of their lives and he's just hanging out with them. I think they just meant to whisper that in the ears of the disciples. But something else happens. Jesus hears. And he turns and he looks at them. Again, 
I'm not there, so I don't know that this happened, but what do you think it would have been like for Jesus to suddenly look at you right when you were in the middle of whispering something nasty? I don't know. That's the way I imagine. And he looks at them, and he says, and he tries to explain who he is. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Oh, man. That stings. That hurts. And when I, when I really start to meditate on those words of Jesus, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Healthy people don't need healing. When I meditate on what those words mean, I feel judged. And I find that even in the middle of my Christianity, I start to allow in this rule from outside. If you don't know the right people, you aren't the right people. Because you know, it would be, and it is, much, much easier to apply the medicine of God's Word to people who already live by it. It is much less stressful to heal the healthy. We're going to have a whole church dedicated to healing the healthy. Get you when your life is already kind of on track for Jesus, and then we'll, you know, encourage you to keep that up. Sort of like a health care plan that uh, carefully sorts through its patient database. Let's get all the sick people off our rolls. We'll have a nice insurance plan for healthy people. Well, that's efficient. That's economic. There's a nice tidy profit margin from that. The only trouble is, what about all those sick people? If a church says, well, what we want is for people to look at us and say, man, those are remarkable specimens. Admirable specimens. I want to go to a church that has that many wonderful people in it. If a church approaches its mission by saying, well, if we can just kind of scooch the unmentionables out of our congregation, we kind of just maybe find other places to put them, or just subtly make it so they're not as welcome. We can have a nice congregation full of just the right kind of people, the kind of people you want to hang out with. And think of the growth we'll experience if we do that. If we're a congregation full of just the kind of people you want to hang out with, then we'll get other people to come in. Who will we get to come in? Well, other people who really value hanging out with the right kind of people. But still... That's what will happen. Because it's easy to heal the healthy. And Jesus says, that's not why I'm here. I didn't come to do easy stuff. Healthy people don't need healing. Sick people need healing, and so I'm here for the sick. Where else did you expect to find me but hanging out with sinful people? I'm here to save sinners. Where else did you expect to find me 
except with those who are struggling in their lives. That's what God sent me to do. But Jesus, don't you understand? If you don't know the right people, you aren't the right people. To which Jesus will answer, the person you need to know is God. If you don't know God, then your life is a shambles. And guess where God is? He is calling these sinners back to repentance. If you want to know God, then you be where the struggle is. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah, you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be inconvenienced. That's all true. That happened to Jesus. That will happen to you. But if you get there where, the, where God is struggling to reclaim souls, then you will know God. Here's the message I want you to take away. It is a lot less trouble to heal the healthy. But if you want to be like God, help those who are spiritually sick. The preacher, if we have a lot of spiritually sick people in, people are going to think that that's what we're like. Or, or preacher, if we, if we get a lot of the spiritually struggling in here, then, then people are going to think we approve of their lifestyles. If we get a lot of people who are spiritually struggling, then people who aren't spiritually struggling are going to want to stay away. To which Jesus would answer, Why do you care what other people think? You need to worry about what God thinks. You are way, 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 way too sold out to the opinions of other people who are floundering around lost, truth be told. What you need to do is worry about whether you know me. And whether or not you are about your father's business, Jesus says, because that's what I'm going to be doing. So get in there in those places where life is messy, where people are struggling, where they are messed up. You will be amazed. And this is what happened in the life of Jesus again and again and again. The people who had been shunned and neglected by society were so happy that Jesus was paying attention to them. It's the people who are struggling who will receive your message most joyfully, oftentimes. Yup, it's messy. Yup, it's inconvenient. Yup, it's going to stretch you and make you feel uncomfortable. But let me tell you something. You're also going to find out you're right there working shoulder to shoulder with God. God sent us here to seek the lost. He sent us here to heal the sick. God sent us here to proclaim freedom from those who are bound up in chains. Let's be about our Father's business. If you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ to be a part of His mission, to reclaim the lost, to bring in those who are struggling. If you need healing yourself, if you're struggling yourself and you need 
prayers in a public way, then you can come forward in just a minute and we'll pray for you. Or if you need to talk to us privately, then please see me or, or the elders or Jeremy or uh, anybody else who is uh, working here, and we will pray for you. It may be that you've, re- you've reached the place where you are ready to put on Jesus Christ in baptism. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it's really just a big water tank back here, uh, and, and, and we, we put you under that water. That's the physical act of baptism. But it's an amazing thing. When a person is baptized, the old life, the old messed up life dies. That's why we bury you. And we raise you up to a brand new life where God infuses you with the gift of the Holy Spirit, washing away all your sin. It's an amazing thing that happens here. If you are ready to take that step, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?